Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. I'm Carmen DeVito. And we bring the culture to horticulture. So, as garden designers, we dream of gardens all the time. But the first garden, and I think the one that holds the sweetest spot, and the garden that is most widely introduced to children, was to me a fictional place. It's a place where bunnies run free, wreaking havoc in the veggie bed, possibly ending up as rabbit (laughs) stew for the McGregors and leaving cute little fictional rabbit jumpers to coin the British phrase for sweater on fences to infuriate the gardener, Mr. McGregor. I'm talking, of course, about Peter Rabbit and the gardens that Peter Rabbit frequents. I spend a lot of time with this book and my two-year-old little boy these days. (laughs) And I always wondered as a gardener and just as a, as a, person interested in gardens where the inspiration for this garden and these magical worlds and these timeless stories originated so but before we do that yes horticultural we have have to do the we have to do two horticultural things of note one before we go back in time we have to talk about the future and tomorrow is (laughs) plantarama and we want everyone who is in the area to come and meet us at the brooklyn Brooklyn botanic garden um, with admission to the garden, you get to come to the trade show. Um, I don't know if there are spots left for the great symposiums and lectures that are happening all day, but please, please try to come. Don't let the 10-degree weather stop you. It's totally <laughs> worth it. You can be among palms and orchids. So tomorrow, Brooklyn Botanic Garden, Plantarama, Alice and I will be there representing Heritage and the show. It's basically like 9 to 4. Yeah, like it's great. It's a great way to spend the day. So that's the future event. But we have to also do our horticultural honor roll. And today, today's horticultural honor roll is Beatrix Potter. Right. Because we know her as the uh, children's book author and illustrator, but she was also an incredible plants woman and from a young age. Right. And she really brought the garden into our living rooms. And into our bedtime story worlds. <laughs> yeah. And the stories weren't all um, nice. Ha- nice. No. And that's what I loved about them. And when I have a 14-year-old, and I read those books, uh, the Beatrix Potter books to him, and they are real. You know, the yeah. animals, uh, the bunnies are in danger, and the gardener yeah. would kill him if you caught him, him and make him into stew. Him into right. stew. <laughs> so um, we're going to hear more. Um, Alice, will you introduce I will. our guest? I will. Um, so 
one one thing. I'm dedicating the show to my father, who yes. who taught me about Beatrix Potter. These books were my dad's first books. Um, he now has a PhD and uh, <laughs> has spent his life with books, but um, these are his first and, and his most favorite of these books. And thank you, Dad, for introducing these. So anyway, today we have this great person who's going to tell us all about Beatrix Potter. Her name is Marta McDowell. She's the author that has researched and written this fabulous book, um, on Beatrix Potter and her gardening life. The title of the book is Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life by Timber Press. Welcome, Marta. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good, good. So a little information on Marta. Um, Marta lives, gardens, and writes in Chatham, New Jersey. She consults for public gardens and private clients. She writes and lectures on gardening topics and teaches landscape history and horticulture at the New York Botanical Garden, where she studied landscape design. And Marta's particular interest is in authors and their gardens, the connection between the pen and the trowel. Her first book Emily Dickinson's Gardens, a celebration of a poet and a gardener, was published in 2005, and Marta is an active member of the Beatrix Potter Society. So Marta, tell us how you wrote this book. How did this inspiration come to you? Well, after hearing about your children and your father, I feel like a little bit of a fraud because I did not read Beatrix Potter as a child, nor was she read to me. Ah, so you discovered her on your own. Even more fun. That's it. I was a child of the Golden Slash Wonder Book era. I have to remember those. I, oh, yes. Okay, so. I have several of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I, I grew up on a book called Little Peter Cottontail. Uh-huh. And uh, my favorite bunny really was named Bugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very familiar but with those get, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So to get back to your question, I really learned about Beatrix Potter from the Morgan Library. Ah. Uh, they did an exhibit uh-huh. in 1988. Yes, I went to that as well. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, this is the importance of museums. Uh-huh. So at that exhibit... I learned that not only did she write and illustrate children's books, but that she was interested in science and farming, and she did a lot of botanical painting. And then, as ideas sometimes do, it went dormant, mm-hmm. right? It just was in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I visited the Lake District, and then in about 2005, I was at the New York Botanical Garden. I walk into their wonderful shop, mm-hmm. and side by side on the book table are two books, a new big biography of Beatrix Potter by Linda Lear, mm-hmm. and a big collection of the complete tales of Beatrix Potter put out by Penguin Horn. Mm-hmm. I bought them both, and off I went. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Yeah, I went to that show in 1988. And, um, you know, they just did kind of a reincarnation of that show just last fall at the Morgan. I know, with all those great picture letters. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the illustrations are just beautiful if, um, if anyone... Is this still on? No, oh. it, it sadly ended. Um, and now they're actually doing a Little Prince show. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. I grew up with that, too. Yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. But back to Beatrix as a youth. Let's talk about her. Can yeah. you shed some light on her youth, Marta? Sure. So she grew up um, 
Oh, not quite like Downton Abbey, let's say, <laughs> but pretty much, yeah, upstairs, downstairs. She was certainly upstairs. Uh-huh. Um, her parents were of the kind of people who, well, let's say her father was a gentleman, and gentlemen didn't have to earn money. Right. <laughs> so her grandparents made all the money in cotton manufacturing in and around Manchester, and then their children moved to London, and... Well, her father did study law, but, you know, basically they just were socialites, right. if yeah. you will. Law was a hobby rather than a profession. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Absolutely. Gardens right. were a hobby. Right. So Beatrix Potter grew up with a lot of gardens around her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she took art lessons very young. She showed a, you know, a real flair for drawing and painting, and that was certainly an appropriate accomplishment mm-hmm. for a young lady in those days. So, you know, I think it was a nice thing for her to do as an outlet, but also she was very shy. So I think it was a way of expressing herself. Yeah. there. I love the quote from your book. Um, when I was young, it was still the fashion to admire the pre-Raphaelites. Their meticulous copying of flowers and plants influenced me. Art school and library collections. <laughs> so yes. The, so if you don't remember from your art history classes, who were the pre-Raphaelites? Um, there was Millet, there was Dante Gabriel Rossetti. You know, you can go to the Metropolitan and mm-hmm. see their big canvases, mm-hmm. which are usually, you know, some kind of historic subject. But they always have these wonderful flowers in them. Right, yes. And her father was a big friend of Millet and used to take photographs for him. So Millet would paint in the studio and then Rupert Potter would go out and take landscape pictures that he could use to paint in the background. Right, right. So her father was a photographer back when it was a very expensive and very early hobby. Right, so it was emerging. Right. So yeah. this was, um, she, you know, kind of spent lots of summers and even times in the middle of the year in country houses and alongside the gardeners and kind of collected animals as pets and she had a very um eclectic or childhood it w- it wasn't a typical childhood she was kind of she was pretty yeah. indulged right yeah yeah she yeah. certainly was so you know if you were in that circle of society mm-hmm. london had a season but when it wasn't the season you basically got out of town right. it was you know london was fairly dirty and mm-hmm. you know there <laughs> yeah. were you know it was not particularly healthy so well, nowadays, people still, you know, like, they go out to Hamptons and that sort of thing. Right. So the Potters went to Scotland, mm-hmm. and they would go to Scotland not for a couple of weeks, but for several months every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her father loved the salmon fishing. They would rent this big manor house along with garden staff. They would bring their own servants, but the garden staff stayed with the house. Mm-hmm. And Beatrix Potter writes about, you know, her memories of running around the garden and collecting wildflowers. And with her brother, who was about six years younger, they also did collect a great menagerie of pets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you tell us about some of the pets? <laughs> the, the list was hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious. So at various times, oh, they had lizards and frogs and bats and mice and ugh, owls. Uh-huh. Um, of course, they, had, they did have dogs <laughs> yes, uh-huh. and bunnies. Uh-huh. Yes. Many many pet bunnies, different kinds of birds. So, and they were allowed to keep these in the nursery. Of course, they had you know 
sort of nursemaids and then governesses. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how the nannies felt on. about that. I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't know how the nannies felt about it. You have to manage the children as well as the bats and the owls. <laughs> and bats. Now, I, I, ho- I hope no one is squeamish, but realize that in those days, you know, people were very interested in what they called natural history. You know, mm-hmm. what we today would, would divide up into biology and chemistry and things like that. So Beatrix and Bertram, her little brother, you know, when the pets died a natural death, they would sometimes boil them and rearticulate the skeleton. Right, right. So, you know, this brought back <laughs> flashes of high school biology class for me, which was never my favorite thing. But they did it as, you know, as a hobby. Yeah. What the, one of the quotes was, in the, the woods were, and this is what Beatrix says, the woods were peopled by the mysterious good folk. Is what is how she describes some of these summer houses and the freedom that she had um, to, you know, explore, run around yeah. and be loose and hang around with the gardener and, and yeah, like recreate animal skeletons and, and really explore, you know? Yes, and they would collect, you know, seeds and, uh, you know, eggs and all sorts of things right you know and they were very interested in nature she also had a scottish nursemaid who used to tell her all sorts of fantastic tales yeah so i think that may have inspired her later on as well okay here's a question for you as a as a landscape history person i I mean i know the history of scotland but why particularly is it the Scottish gardener. It's always a Scottish gardener, even on The Simpsons, you know? Yeah. The so custodian. The custodian. It, it's always... A, and the, why are they always surly? They're like the angriest <laughs> servant, all right? They are well, the angriest... <laughs> well, first of all, if you've ever traveled in Scotland, it's always raining. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I feel that I can say this because of my old Scottish roots. Yeah. Um, so I think it rains a lot. The Scottish Enlightenment meant that there was a lot of interest in botany early on in Scotland, mm-hmm. okay. but there weren't so many jobs. Okay. Uh, so okay. a lot of the money was south of the border. You mm. know, there were, some, there were some wealthy Scottish nobles, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, there were a lot of crofters compared to the number of lairds. Right. So right. if you wanted to make some money to send back to your family, uh-huh. you would go to England and get on with one of the families there. Right. And so I think that's what really happened. And then as often happens with immigration, I think when one person goes out, they bring along the next person and right. their cousin. And then they just got a reputation for being these fabulous gardeners and these very intrepid explorers. So a lot of the plant explorers that were yeah. sent out across the world were Sure. All yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I also want to note that Beatrix Potter grew up on a capability brown landscape, which is really a phenomenal um, experience. Her grandparents' house yes, were you talking about? Camfield? Camfield yeah. was a capability yeah, so brown. Yeah. Camfield Place is about Oh, if you're in a car now, it's about 20 minutes from central London, half hour maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, of course, a little longer because you would be uh, taking a carriage or perhaps taking a train. But So not far from London, you get out to this rolling countryside, which at least for me as an American is like my uh, sort of image, my internal image of what the English countryside looks like, kind mm-hmm. of rolling grass and agricultural fields and 
lovely groupings of trees. Mm-hmm. Well, you come to find out that there is this fellow, Lancelot Capability Brown, mm-hmm. who in the 18th century started going around England and, you know, for many of the best families, telling them that their landscape had wonderful capabilities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if they just had a deep enough pocket, he could make them come out, you know, for them. Right. And <laughs> I'm going to use that know, line. I mean, <laughs> that's right. Great Good capabilities. Luck. In, Good luck with that in the yeah. suburbs. <laughs> yeah. Your landscape Indeed. has great capabilities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but Capability Brown would do things like, well, if you have a little stream, let's make it a lake. Yeah. Or if that hill is blocking your way, uh-huh. we'll just carve it away. <laughs> Don't right. like that village? We'll get rid of those villagers. <laughs> right. So, you know. <laughs> I always think of Capability Brown when I live right next to Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and I always think of Capability Brown, and, and I wonder what, you know, um, I, I, I believe that was somewhat of Olmsted's vision, you know, I, I think. That's right. Yeah, it was just that vast open like you said, rolling hills and perfectly placed trees and paths and, you know, mirrors and... An improvement on nature. Right. Riparian landscapes, (laughs) etc. Yes, an improvement on nature and to make the landscape, uh, you know, as if it were a painting so that the composition is perfect, that it follows those lines of beauty and those other ideas Ideals, ideals that they right. were really trying to foster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you talked about, we just talked about Capability Brown, and Carmen and I just were in London a couple of months ago, and we went to Kew, yes. um, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he did some of their land as well. Um, and we had the chance to happen upon this amazing woman um, named Marianne North. Yes. Um, who is oh, yes. now passed away, but she was a painter um, and and she was a woman who left England at the age of 40, I believe. Yes. And went to the New World and went to Central and South America and then onward she went to Malaysia and she did all these paintings, um, these botanical paintings and big, huge landscapes, but they were actually very small in scale and she built um, a building. Her parents were well-to-do, obviously, and very connected with Q. And she built this building for the exhibition of her artworks. And we got to tour the Marianne North Gallery. And then I realized, as I was reading your book, Marta, that that Beatrix Potter and Marianne North were contemporaries. Do you yes. know if they ever mm-hmm. met? I don't know if they ever met. As far as I know, she does not mention her. And They had, you know, Marianne North compared to Beatrix Potter, they had different sort of aspirations. Yeah. You know, Beatrix Potter, I think in her whole life, she only left, you know, the the island, if you will, of (laughs) England and extended England and Scotland once, and that was for an overnight trip to Ireland. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Right. So she had a much smaller world view. Once she kind of found herself in the Lake District, she was really content mm-hmm. and didn't feel the need to go beyond that. So she wasn't really, she wanted to do something. That was clear in yes. reading like her journal and her letters, that she had ambition, but she didn't have ambition to travel mm-hmm. in that way. So, you know, they had 
they had somewhat <clears throat> similar paths because they were both so interested in plants and botany, uh, but they took different roads. Yeah. It forked it in a different way. It's like micro and macro, macro world. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. so then let's talk about how she got involved with these drawings. I, I read in your book that she actually was kind of searching for something to do, and she started kind of going down the path of scientific illustration, right? But she wasn't... That's right. So... She, yeah. Tell me about that. So Beatrix... Yeah, she... Um, she didn't go away to school. That would have been unusual at the time. So she was taught at home, even though her brother went away to boarding school. Uh, she was, again, quite shy. So she wasn't the kind of girl who was going around looking for the next party or the next dance to go husband to. no uh, and she had some he- health problems too mm-hmm. i think of her as a tiny bit nerdy uh, you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah so you know if she were on the big bang theory she wouldn't be penny <laughs> so anyway right. you get the drift. yeah you exactly get, you get the idea you get the drift. so she she does a lot of paintings of different things she paints fossils and she paints some animals and then she starts to get interested in funguses, mm-hmm. as she called them, and really interested to the point where I think that there are probably close to a thousand different paintings of different mushrooms that she did. Mm-hmm. Um, she started corresponding with people about funguses, and she started um, being very interested in the botany. It was the only time really that she uses a lot of botanical latin in her correspondence she goes to the natural history museum and speaking of q she goes to q Mm -hmm. Uh, her uncle was a well-known chemist so he brought her and gave her an introduction to some of the botanists there but you know she didn't get a really warm reception she had no credentials other than uncle harry right Uh uh-huh so it would be like, you know, me showing up at some, you know, illustrious, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and knocking on the door and saying, I have a new theory about Michelangelo, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they go like, well, you know, that's nice, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, you, you pay the admission downstairs. Yeah. So, and also she was know, a I woman and she was... Um, unmarried. Unmarried. So <laughs> did that was was that a bit of a an obstacle as well for her? Even, yeah. Ab- even being a daughter of privilege and all that? Absolutely. I mean, they yeah. just... It was not a time when women were easily accepted. I mean, there were some exceptions, of course, but they were not easily accepted into scientific circles. In fact, the Linnaean Society, which was mm-hmm. the premier, you know, botanical society in England at the time, didn't admit women. So mm-hmm. there right. you go. Here right. she is. She's got this idea. She even writes a scientific paper, which is presented, but goes nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. It just sort of drops out of sight. Right. And in fact, if anyone can ever find it, <laughs> they will be famous, at least in Beatrix Potter circles. Yeah. Um, so she she does get a few of these drawings published, though, right, with the help of her brother and uncle? Um, she gets some drawings published. They are actually drawings of, um, you know, sort of animal characters, things mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. this, the, the mushroom drawings... Mm-hmm. 
just don't go anywhere. She, you know, she talks about different things that she's exploring, but basically she bundles them carefully up, and once in a while she'll bring them out and show them to people. But they just it it becomes a dead end for her, mm-hmm. and so she tries other things. Right. Right. Hang Lucky on. For us. We have yeah. to take a break. I'm gonna before we go to a break. The quote from your book, Marta, is. Uh, you know, she she wrote these. Or she, she was drawing these beautiful, fantastical stories of the earth and mushrooms, fungi in particular, and people slinging and bobbing and dancing in the grass under the leaves, all down below, like the whistling that some people cannot hear of stray mice and bats, and I sitting above and knowing something about them. So she had this very small intimate world that she was very very connected with that she illustrated so we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about how she actually gets those drawings into the public realm stay tuned to we dig plants You are listening to Andy's Biscuits by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Since 2001, Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. Welcome back to We Dick Plants. Alice and I here um, are talking with Marta McDowell, the author of Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life. Um, we we just got so carried away, we almost forgot to do the intermission. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have so many questions for you, Marta. Let's get into um, how um, her first books first got published. Um, sure. Uh, tell us about the help that she had sort of received from her brother and her uncle and how she... That, that whole process of, of, you know, reaching out and then self-publishing. So she started out with some of her artworks and had them published by a German card printer. Mm-hmm. Um, and her uncle and brother helped her find those uh, sources. Mm-hmm. But then she started writing to the children of her former governess. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't need a governess anymore. By this time, she's in her 30s, <laughs> and she's just an unmarried daughter living at home. And so she writes this now very famous letter to Noel Moore, a child who was sick, and, you know, starts telling him this story about Peter Rabbit. So a few years go by, and again, this former governess says, gee, why don't you make this into a children's book? And so she tries. Mm-hmm. She goes out with her drawings and her story to a bunch of publishers, and they all say no. 
I'm sure they're all <laughs> so she prints it herself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are, you know, discouraged, if you're an author and you're discouraged about not finding a publisher, just realize Beatrix Potter was there with you. Yeah. So she she does what a lot of people do today, which is she self-published. Mm-hmm. Uh, she printed 250 copies. They sold. She print, printed 250 more. And then Frederick Warren said, yes, we're interested. We would like to publish this book. And they were kind of a smaller publisher, right? Like a family-run press, more yes. more intimate and able to really pay attention to her, I think. And they saw, That's, like, something in her drawings. That's right. Yeah. And this was 1901. And so then they put it out in color. So that mm-hmm. was the first color edition of the tale of Peter Rabbit. Mm-hmm. How much do these illustrations sell for now? <laughs> Are they even on the market? Oh, <laughs> I mean, they, they once in a while there'll be a painting that comes up, uh-huh. but it's in the tens of thousands of yeah. dollars now for an individual painting by Beatrix Potter. Yeah, and they're few and far between because they're mostly held in museums. Yeah, sure. when I first moved to New York, actually, that was my job. I sold. Um, I worked at an auction house that only dealt with illustrations, and we would always covet the Willie, the Beatrix Potter. Did anyone? Did anyone's ever come through? We yeah, they they would come through, but it was mostly like Marna said, sold to museums yeah. and and you yeah. know. But we would sometimes have to appraise them, and you know, it was it was really fun to uh, to see them in in reality. And I found, yeah. and but she didn't stay a single author illustrator for too much longer, right? She eventually got married, didn't she, Marta? She did. Pretty far down the way. She was yeah. in her 40s. Uh-huh. So she was, if you saw the Miss Potter movie, the Renee Zellweger movie that was around maybe 2000, mm-hmm. um, you know that she fell in love with her editor, Norman Warren. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, her parents did not approve mm-hmm. because he was in the trades, right? right? He was still earning a living. He was yeah. a working guy. Um, so right. they were just quietly engaged with the idea that if, you know, if it stuck on that they would eventually be able to announce it. But he died mm-hmm. uh, quite suddenly of leukemia. And wow. So it must have been a really hard time. And at that point is also when she buys her first property of her own, which is Hilltop Farm. Right. And that's amazing because this is from the royalties of her books. Right? Mostly, yeah. She had a little inheritance from an aunt, uh-huh. but... Uh, mostly royal, you know, her own money. Yeah. And she wasn't buying it to live there. Again, you know, if she had been getting married, then they could have used it as a country place. But she was, you know, then just buying it as, A, an investment, and B, a place that she could go for a couple of weeks. But again, she was still living with her parents at the time. Right. So let's talk about Beatrix as a garden maker. Um, and that that she really worked... Um, it was it was more like a modest cottage garden, right? Versus the grand yes. estate style that she grew up on. Yes, yeah, so this is a little farmhouse tucked into a tiny village in the Lake District. This was not like the houses that her parents rented. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not her, you know, her sort of lifestyle to which she had become accustomed, but it seemed to be one that she yearned for. Uh-huh. Uh, she was going, you know, just like today people decide that they're going to leave their, you know, jobs in the big city and go find a farm and do something else. That's really, I think, what she had in mind. 
And the minute she gets out there, she starts working on the garden. Mm-hmm. She starts working on the house, too. But So she's going to keep the farm family living there because, again, she's not living there full time. Oh, okay. And so she puts, yeah, mm-hmm. she puts a wing on the house and immediately starts to get the guys putting stone walks in and doing all sorts of improvements on the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what she writes about. Her letters are full of gardening news and all that she's learning and that she's putting, you know, sort of manure tea on the apple trees with a long scoop. And she's just thrilled. Yeah. Now, do you know, because she was also a contemporary of Gertrude Jekyll, do you know if she ever, if they ever met? Again, there's no indication that she ever met Jekyll. Um, she certainly knew of John Ruskin. Uh, we think that there was a William Robinson um, gardening book that was in her library. Mm. So it was uh, kind of in the air. Um, and then she knew the Mawson family. Uh, Thomas Mawson was another garden designer, and his brothers had a nursery right across the lake from her in Windermere. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So not only was she writing these wonderful stories and gardening, but she also became kind of a marketer of her own material, right? And she started to do spin-off merchandise, which is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it did not start with Walt Disney. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> right? right? So Beatrix Potter, I think, was very early in this idea of coming out with spin-off merchandise. Wow. So she actually made herself the first model of a stuffed Peter Rabbit. Oh, can you imagine you know, complete how with sweet the little that jacket. Yeah. Yeah, and she, you know, she arranged to have manufacturers do that. Uh-huh. She had different coloring books and painting books and the little china figurines and wallpaper, you know, kind of you name it. She wanted to make money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's so interesting so, for a woman from her of her of her stature, stature yeah. you know, her upbringing um it sounds like she wanted to really be independent. I mean, she was branding herself before the, you know, decades before that word was coined. Absolutely. Right. Well, and realize, too, she would not have inherited the bulk of the money. That's it right. It would have gone to her brother. Her brother. Right. Yeah. Um, and, right. you know, if she didn't marry, then she would have expected an allowance, but mm-hmm. not much else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, again, she she really sees the possibilities. There's a wonderful um, sort of Peter Rabbit game that has the whole garden, and you move through sort of like you did with Candyland or something like that, um, that she put out, again, very early on. That's amazing. Do you know if that's still in production? It should be. <laughs> I would love to see that. <laughs> I don't know. I know that you can you can buy them occasionally, the old ones, but I haven't seen one recently. Yeah, I'm gonna go home and search on eBay for that. <laughs> one of my one of my child's favorite uh, toys when he was between I think four and six was this uh, bunnies and cabbages bowling game. It was a bunch <laughs> of bunnies. It was I don't know if it was Peter Rabbit specific, you know, or Beatrix Potter. It might have been a sort of a knockoff or a uh-huh. spinoff of it, uh-huh. but it was very clearly. Bunnies as bowling pins and cabbages 
right. as the ball. Oh, so and it was sweet. oh my god, that sounds great. It was it's awesome. We still have it because it's beautiful. Each bunny is beautifully articulated in cloth. Oh, you know, with like a wooden base, <laughs> yeah. one of those like old fashioned toys, and it's just very interesting. You know, yeah. w- that like even if it wasn't directly from her, she ins- she's probably inspired so many sort of copycat books. I would imagine Knock too, off. right, Marta? Yeah. Like about bunnies. Yeah, both- and- Yes, both both good and bad right. in the sense yeah. that in America, her publisher forgot to register the copyright. Oh, God. And so, and so The Tale of Peter Rabbit was, it wasn't exactly pirated. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really illegal because the copyright wasn't registered. But there are many, many, many versions of The Tale of Peter Rabbit, and... Uh, Beatrix Potter did not get a dime from those. Oh wow! <laughs> because I remember seeing other books that were remarkably similar when my when my son was younger, and that kind of explains it. You know? Yes, it's also it's also why many Americans call him Farmer McGregor oh. because <laughs> the American publishers, I think, felt that Americans would not really recognize a gardener like a Mr. McGregor, right. but they would recognize a farmer McGregor. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> so did so the original publisher, Warren and Company, did they were they selling here in the States or did they kind of subcontract out to an American publisher? Um, I think they wished that they were selling in the States and they just made a big mistake with the first one. Okay. After that they sort of fixed it up. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So did she these stories, I mean, there's like thousands of these stories. Did um, did she ever kind of write herself in these stories? Was there um, any? There is, I think it's the tale of Little Pig Robinson, uh, where she does show up in one of the illustrations, but not really. Okay. Uh, she, w- she was not trying to be famous herself. Right. Um. You know, she was glad to make the money off of it, but she was not interested in doing author appearances. Mm. Uh, of course, they didn't have radio shows in those days. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but really, she just wanted the book to sell, and she was happy that they did. But she got tired of it after a while. She started complaining a little bit about the bunny books and having to do <laughs> yet another one. And yeah. I think it was in the New York Times which said, Oh, here comes another Beatrix Potter book. They are like the leaves of autumn, and every year a new one comes wafting in. I hate the times. <laughs> Give me a break. See, they've always been obnoxious. They're still obnoxious. Um, no, no. No. They've been very good to my book. They so. have. That's, that's and, good. And God bless Ann Raver. Yes. Well, she's a gardener at heart. So. Um, that's right. So let's talk about the word uh, sporific. Right? Soporific. Soporific. Oh, soporific. Yeah. Soporific. So I want to mention that in these books, now, so The Tale of Peter Rabbit is before she has bought her own place. But as soon as she has it, so starting in 1905, her garden starts to make appearances in the books. Mm -hmm. So when you get up to things like The Tale of Jemima Puddle Duck, you start to actually see pictures of her garden and her farmhouse, which is really fun. Uh-huh. And so I've had a good time doing that and sort of finding those things. Right. Uh, when she gets up to the tail of the Flopsy Bunnies, we get a great example of Beatrix Potter using a really big word for 
a children's book mm-hmm. because soporific means sleepy. And, right. you know, your, your average, what, eight, four, eight, ten-year-old is not going to know what that no. means. I had no. to look it up myself. Yeah, <laughs> right. I did, too. <laughs> but she felt that children should be able to have a good big word to chew on. Uh-huh, <laughs> literally. And it is a word that people remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of these tales are kind of dark, right, Marta? I mean, they're not, like, it's not all happy and beauty in the garden. Some of them are... I mean, the bunnies are in danger. Right. You know? <laughs> they're, right. Real danger. they're getting harassed, and they get lost and separated from each other, and they have to find their way home in several occasions. So, you know, do, do you think she, she didn't... She didn't have an idealistic view of the world, right? I think she was... Oh, no. You know, if you really look at nature and watch it carefully, yeah, you know that it doesn't always have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, her very first book on, I think, basically the very first page... Peter's mother says, you know, Daddy got put into a pie by Mrs. McGregor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty tough. That's but if you think about the Grimm's fairy tales. Right. You know, those are pretty tough, too. Yeah, they are. They are. So, um, so she kind of became, um, She became, obviously, she was a very serious gardener. And she writes in your book, you have, like, you talk about where she got her plants and how she collected. Um, and this... I, I liked if I'm going to read one of your or actually it's not a quote but you you talk a lot about her style of gardening and that she was living beyond the pale of London society she jettisoned its obligations and conventions and her costume changed to a straw hat for a garden a woolen jacket and skirt and clogs or boots for the mud when there was cloudburst sacking was thrown over her shoulders and when there was too much sunshine, <laughs> a rhubarb leaf was found on top of her head. So she really kind of became a recluse a little bit, right? Not a recluse. I think she went native. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, instead of having to get dressed up every day and go out and make calls and leave your card and have tea and be polite, yeah. she would go out in the garden. She'd go out in the hayfield. Yeah. You know, she was just very interested in the things that were growing and what was going on with her sheep. You know, she she started raising these uh, traditional um, sheep, and she just wasn't interested in that kind of society anymore. Right. And I think it's one of the reasons that I, I was really attracted to Beatrix Potter as a protagonist, Mm-hmm. Because if you ever come in my backyard early any morning, you will find me out in my garden in my pajamas. Of course, not this season. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she she wore what was comfortable. Yes. Right. And, and, that, and, yeah. pr- and practical. Yeah, yeah. I have to. I, I say that I subscribe to that. Um, yeah. It's a good thing that my garden's mostly in the back of my house. I yeah. say, otherwise, <laughs> my neighbors would get quite a show early yeah. in the morning. Quite a show. Or late at night. Yes. You yeah. know, just, you know, so you just don't even want to change into, you know, you just throw your rubber boots over whatever you're wearing uh-huh. and, you know. But I also like that she wasn't afraid of trying new things yeah. in her garden. And, and she was pretty interested in scientific advances 
with regard to the farm and fertilizers and weed killers. And so she wasn't like this purist, you know. She definitely was but very interested in in science, but also she was a very strict land conservationist. Is that right, Marta? Yes. Yes. So, you know, when it gets up to the 1930s and 1940s, um, as most of the world, you know, people started using chemicals to uh, help their garden along. Right. Um, so in the earlier years, you know, she talks a lot about manure and adding, oh, kind of, you know, pieces of lime, um, pieces of concrete, if you will, uh, sort of ground up and put in the soil. So, mm-hmm. you know, she was amending the soil. But then when chemicals were available, she was trying them. She mm-hmm. talks about putting ammonia sulfate on the pasture to green it up right. uh, to get an earlier, you know, an earlier pasture for her cows and her sheep. I wonder what she would think today of all of the crazy methods that we're using. <laughs> you know, I, I bet she would kind of go back to the to the organic method. I, I just have that feeling given I do too. Yeah. I- yeah, she was quite interested in preserving the traditional farms in her area. Mm-hmm. And as she got more money, she just started buying more land. So mm-hmm. by the end of her life, she had accumulated something like 4,000 acres of farmland, which she donated then to the National Trust. Right. I mean, again, with the provision that it be traditionally farmed. Mm-hmm. She did not want the stone walls to come down. She didn't want holiday cottages to be built. Wow. So... So she was very much ahead of her time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was early in the days of the National Trust, and it was, uh, you know, before we had farmland preservation here. Yeah, yeah. So now uh, are all of those, is that land still in the trust, Marta? It is. It is. And if you go to the Lake District now and look around and say, oh, how beautiful this is, you really have Beatrix Potter and those bunny books to thank for them. Wow. It's amazing. (laughs) And and just think of the money that they're still making off of off of those, you know, all that merchandising and all those books. And well, the publisher is still. Classic. I mean, the books. I'm, I have uh, the tale of Peter Rabbit. I have a copy here that I brought that I had the original copy that I had bought for my son. It's still published by F. Warren and Company. Mm-hmm. You know, same publisher. It is. Yeah. Yeah. They've been acquired several times, uh-huh. but they still have the. Uh, they're still an entity that maintains the trademarks and copyrights to uh, to Beatrix Potter. And we can't say that about a lot of children's books that can survive 110 years, right? some 110-odd years, That's right. and still be in print. Right. And it's all about... And it's still among the best-selling children's books in the world. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Quite amazing. It's, 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 it's a phenomenal book, and thank you so much for all of your research and for enlightening us and being with us today. What's next for you, Marta? You've, you know, Emily Dickinson, Beatrix Potter, who's next? Can we get a sneak peek? Uh, <laughs> well, Michelle Obama, in a way. Oh, fun. <laughs> so I'm working on a book about the history of American gardening as seen through the gardens and grounds at the White House. That's oh, fantastic. That's a great which book. Which have had lots of changes over the years. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. But what's really next for me is Plantarama. Yes, yes, good. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> good. Yes, Marta's, so we'll Marta's going to be there tomorrow. Marta's yes. going to be there. You're going to have copies of your book, Marta, as well. 
Uh, yeah, BBG, uh, excuse me, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden will be selling them. Good, good. good. Another good. good reason to go to Plantarama. Well, uh, Marta, we're going to be there actually advertising um, and promoting our show. So please stop by our booth. We'd love to uh, shake your hand and give you a big hug for this book because it it really just made my weekend reading it was just delightful and um my dad actually bought an autographed copy um at the barnes and noble in westport connecticut and gave it to me for christmas oh thank you (laughs) so (laughs) well you can count on it i'll see you tomorrow in person okay great well thank you all for listening um thank you to marta mcdowell for being our guest beatrix potter's gardening life um you're listening to we dig plants join us on facebook become a friend and win some gardening swag each week as we select at random a friend it's we dig plants slash groundworks inc on facebook and we're on twitter with we dig plants thanks to joe g for engineering and jack insley for producing for producing happy gardening see you in the garden Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.